Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is the podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. This week, we're up to episode number 59. I'm calling it a critical take on the contribution of HR. And I'm welcoming to the program a special guest who's written a book on this topic. I'm joined now by Linda Holbeach, uh, who is the co-director of the Holbeach Partnership, and she's coming to us today from Brighton in the UK. How are you doing, Linda? I'm fine, thanks, Charles, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me to to join you today. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Um, you've done a lot of writing over the years. Uh, I looked at your LinkedIn profile and certainly your Amazon page, author's page, uh, showing a number of books that you've written. Uh, tell us a little bit about your focus over the years and how you get in, got into this particular area of organizational performance, organizational effectiveness, and uh, the other aspects that you're working on now. Well, I, I've been having quite a, um, a mixed experience career, Charles, in that um, I've had spells in teaching, in um, corporate life, um, and in think tanks, research establishments. And uh, I think I got into it initially um, when I was working for a major international corporation that was going through a period of downsizing. And although I wasn't myself affected by it, I noticed that um, a lot of colleagues were. Um, they either lost their jobs or in you know, severe shock about what was happening. And it got me very interested in what happens to people when organizations go through change. And so much so that um, I actually wrote a book um, the first book I did write was about motivating people in lean organizations. And my interest has really since then been looking at what happens to people when organizations do things and are there ways in which people with responsibility for people management, and that would include HR, line managers, executives, obviously, are there things that they could do that would mit- mitigate against some of the worst effects on people. And uh, and indeed, in many of the research roles I've done, I've done annual surveys, I've looked at um, the impact of pe- on people of things like mergers and acquisitions and working in um, strategic alliances and so on. And throughout it all, I've been charting both what's happening more broadly in the world and what's happening in organisations and, and trying to work out, you know, what, what does effectiveness mean from an organizational standpoint? Is it the same as what it means to individuals? The book that came to my attention and the reason I wanted to have you on the show was the one entitled Influencing Organizational Effectiveness, a Critical Take on the HR Contribution. That's the book that just came out December 2016. Uh, why did you want to write this particular book? Well, as I said, the books I've written before this have all been written to try and help people like HR and line managers manage well, you know, do the best they can for the business and and for the people. But um, I think there's been so much change in the world's um, geopolitical system over the last few years. And, you know, obviously we're experiencing political um, upheaval times in the UK and, um, you know, more broadly, as you are aware, there are major thrusts for change going on. So I think I've got more interested in what's happening in the broader system. And is that going to affect how business itself operates 
Um, will it force change? And will that in itself mean that what we think of as an effective organisation might be redefined? And then trying to work out, you know, in the, if you were talking in those terms, would it mean that the roles of managers and HR might have to change quite substantially if they were to try and influence for the better what goes on in organisations? So that's why I said it's a critical take. I'm trying to step back and encourage people to ask themselves some questions about what's been happening um, and what might happen and what their role and responsibility might be for shaping a better a better form of um, organisational practice, perhaps, that doesn't do so much harm, as it seems to me, is being done to some people these days. There are, of course, many definitions of organisational effectiveness. The goal model is one in which... Um, Lots of organizations set goals and, and try to achieve them, and they're effective, are believed to be effective to the extent that they achieve their goals. Um, I think in mm. your book, you're talking of the human relations model of organizational effectiveness to the, to some extent. But tell us how how you define OE and uh, and why do we need a, a definition? Well, um, the way I have always defined it has been. As you say, it's almost like a, a hybrid between the goal model and human relations model in that uh, I've always thought of it as being um, the things that go on in organizations to deliver the results that the organization is seeking to deliver. And, uh, you know, if you go back 30 years or so, uh, certainly since the Reagan period and the Thatcher period in, in the UK, you know, the, the sort of model of, um, of, the, of the global economy really has been based on the market and um you know so certainly here in europe but particularly in the uk there's been an increased marketization of almost every every kind of organization so how you define what goes on in organizations to deliver the results has been progressively more focused on um the mechanics you know the processes and so on and um i would argue almost at the expense of the emphasis on human relations I think if you if you also say that in the last few years we've become much more aware that the demographics of the work workplace global workforce are changing quite significantly and um, you know there is an argument that uh, with the, the the digital era that we're now in and the, the way in which um, competitive advantage can no longer be sustained for very long by large organisations without innovation there is still a big place for uh, people and, and talent in particular in organizations. And I think um, the, the models of OE that I've been working with for a long time, that have sort of neglected the, the human side, are now questionable. And that's why I think um, not only is business going to be re redefining itself progressively, but the models for OE need to as well to take into account the fact that um, even though we know that uh, in recent times there's been a change of political direction, particularly in the US, which may counter what I'm talking about. Uh, more broadly, we're talking about organizations having to work across their boundaries, work with partners, and their, that value chain is, uh, they're only as good as their value chain is. So my definition of OE now is that um, a truly effective organization works back 
from having identified who its key stakeholders are and thinking broadly about who they are and engaging with those stakeholders. And some of those will inevitably involve the people who deliver the work for them, whether they're employees or contract labour. And, you know, it's it's um, one thing to say, OK, well, you've got all these stakeholders, so all you have to do is, is please them. You can't. There's no easy model for doing it, but you have to actively engage with stakeholders if you're going to produce results that are more sustainable in an environment where what you're doing today can be easily replicated in many cases by somebody else tomorrow via the internet. So, um, so my argument is that, that uh, we do need a new way of thinking about organisational effectiveness, not that puts uh, sustainability often thought of as environmentally and ecologically healthy practice as, as its holy grail, but one that actually takes into account the fact that uh, organisations potentially have a lot of power and influence and they could be using that power and influence to avoid doing harm, not only environmentally, but to the communities that they're based in and to the, to the lives of those who work for them and depend on them. So... Um, timing is right. Right. So as you talk about uh, stakeholders, I think what you're voicing here is something closely akin to the multiple constituencies model of organizational effectiveness, uh, which says that organizations are effective to the extent that they satisfy their dominant stakeholders or their strategic constituencies. Um, Would you agree with that? Yes, I would, to a large extent. I mean, I, I think Freeman, particularly his stakeholder model, which um, um, is, is akin to what you've just described, um, is very similar. But the challenge always is to work out who your dominant stakeholders are, because A, they may change over time, and B, perversely, even if you work out who your dominant stakeholders are, focusing intensely on them, and relegating the needs of others to second place or third place may or may not work. There's a very interesting book, um, which I've I've seen the merits of in practice, called Obliquity by a guy called John Kay. His argument is that, uh, you know, if you you have a very, very clear shareholder purpose for your organisation, which is what many do, in many ways it's helpful to people because they know exactly what they've got to do. It determines to a large extent how people will behave and what they get invested in and so on. But ironically, customer um, organisations that have a, um, a customer-focused purpose, they still want to make profits or they still want to deliver public good if they're a public service organisation. But by focusing intensely on customers, it would appear that they actually outperform those that are focused just on shareholder value. They do it obliquely because there's something about energising people around a purpose that actually makes it uh, more feasible for higher performance to emerge. People are better trained in customer-focused organisations. They're usually able to use their initiative more. It's a different cultural um, backdrop, typically. So there is something about the challenge with stakeholder engagement is um, working out not only who your key stakeholders are and trying to align to those, but actually making some choices with those stakeholders, which may mean not putting them first after all, but going round, around the corner to achieve, achieve the journey, if you like. Right. Instead of um, focusing specifically or 
exclusively on shareholders, uh, as you say, uh, the customer is is perhaps a more you know important target target because the customer in the end is paying the bills. If you don't exchange value with the customer, uh, you won't be around for long. Um, so I think this is an important point, um, and I, I take your point that um, we certainly need a definition of organizational effectiveness. But but let me ask you this. Um, the problem with organizational effectiveness, and we've talked about this on other episodes of this podcast, is that it's it's really a it's not a concept; it's a construct. Because there's nothing mm. there's nothing that you can visibly observe in the field uh, that signifies organizational effectiveness. There is no referent, as scholars would say. Uh, in other words, if, if you're looking mm. for you're looking to verify that there's an elephant in the room. You know what an elephant looks like, and you can determine whether it's present. But you can't look in the in the same room and see if there's organizational effectiveness because there's nothing that it doesn't have a form that's readily observable. That's that's true because, as I say, arguably most um, most concepts anyway of of organizational effectiveness focus on the middle bit between the input and the output and the um, the ways in which people at different points in history have been focused on one means or another to improve the output um, so you know historically we've had we've had um, things like uh, business process re-engineering continuous improvement lean all these methodologies that in theory, um, are intended to increase uh, productivity or to, um, you know, efficiencies or whatever. Those kinds of things can be measured, but they're very often lacking from an overall understanding of what what are we really trying to achieve beyond efficiency. And that's where I think the old Drucker um, notion of uh, effectiveness, I think, is 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 um, pretty important. Really, you know, where it's um, effectiveness is really asking yourself the bigger questions about what you're trying to do. It says, uh, he says, efficiency is doing better what is already being done, but effectiveness is deciding what to do better. So essentially, in a, he- in a sense, effectiveness is about looking ahead. It's about shaping and influencing stuff that you want to see happening, both in terms of outputs, and I'm argue- arguing as well in- intensely in the middle bit, in how you manage the people and the processes, um, the intervening pieces in the jigsaw to produce the outputs you want for a wider range of stakeholders than simply shareholders. Uh, so, so think like the community, for instance, that um, a company might be based in. Yeah. Um, so it is difficult because you know it's not something that you can say that is the elephant, uh, but increasingly the indications would be more evident in, um, if you like, in negative uh, metrics, you know, like uh, involuntary staff turnover, difficulties recruiting, loss of key customers, cost of um, cost of production going up, productivity rates not being fast enough or dropping. I think all of these things are are indicators of something that isn't effective. Certainly uh, symptoms of ineffectiveness. And as you say, you know, going from inputs to outputs, um, it, those are really measures of efficiency. 
Um, and a lot of the confusion around organizational effectiveness has gone back, I guess, in the early days. Uh, efficiency was confused with effectiveness. And, and it was mostly about productivity and the instrumentality of, you know, getting the job done. Yes. But as you move into an economy that's constrained by demand, the, mm. you know, the, the customer is in charge. And any transaction with the organization is at the whim of the customer. If the customer is not believing that whatever is being offered by the organization is something of value that they can use and that helps them in some way uh, to generate their own uh, benefits, then the customer is not going to initiate the transaction, basically. So um, effectiveness becomes then, you know, translating the uh, supply-side intention of the organization into demand-side behavior where the, cus mm. the customer uh, engages in uptake, adoption, and use of the offerings that that the organization is is pushing yes and and I think in terms of what you were just saying there's an implication which for me is a key element of effectiveness that the organization is not just waiting to see what the trends are in some ways they're helping create those and shape those trends by innovating by creating customer demands that customers didn't even know they had um, I mean the apple example is, is 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 one of the most obvious you know where there's a whole industry being around, being invented around tablets which 15 years ago we never heard of the things you know that I think there is something here about effectiveness being being about um, people within the organization and here I don't restrict it to those at the top thinking um, and in anticipatory ways looking ahead wanting to find a way to, to deliver either better service or create better products um, to do so in more cost-effective and efficient ways, you know, that sort of shared will to build the organization's sustainable fortunes, if you like, all very idealistic. But there are, there are a few organizations that seem to pull off this magic formula where, you know, people really do care. They do want to give of their best, even though the organization may not be able to offer them long-term permanent employment. But, you know, that's the, the missing piece for me in, uh, in many definitions of organizational effectiveness, that it, they underscore the sort of invisible bit, going back to your elephant in the room, which is the goodwill and the positive intent of a skilled workforce to deliver what the organization needs. And the missing piece for me is that that has to be done in a sort of equitable partnership way, that relationship, it is a relationship between an employer and the people who deliver the work, whether they're employees or contract workers. And that's, I think, where, as I say, why I think one of the reasons why I think we need a new way of thinking about organizational effectiveness, because by and large, at the tail end of the shareholder value pursuit, you tend to get CEOs getting rewarded for large scale, you know, making lots of people redundant for buying sites and moving things. And, you know, I'm not saying that all of that is bad, but I do think there's a huge amount of disruption, which the employees by and large pay the price for. And uh, some of the employment trends in Europe in particular are not good in terms of offering no, no continuity of employment at all. And yet firms still expect the very best from employees. So I'm arguing it needs to be 
a, a different, more ethical, more genuine relationship where organisations and, and, and their workers can find common cause um, and seek to do their best. And uh, it's not a hire and fire scenario. Yeah, there's a number of areas that uh, you opened up there. Uh, it's almost a Pandora's box of, uh, of things. Uh, you talked about the social contract, really, uh, between the organization <laughs> and its employees. Um, you talked yeah. about the, the motivation of workers to, to serve and, and whether it's serving shareholders or sharing, uh, serving the customer or, or serving society. That, that makes a, an enormous difference in terms of their motivation. And then, then you got into, you know, things really related to agency theory uh, and, um, you know, whether or not, um, you know, we're serving the right master in a sense. So could we, could we come back and, and focus a little bit on, I think, what you've talked about, neoliberal ideas to some extent. Uh, I would associate those with Milton Friedman and agency theory. Mm. Would you care to get into that area a little bit? Yes, I think the most of my working life anyway, I've taken for granted the idea that progressively market the market is the ultimate determinant of what happens to businesses. Um, you know, they survive or thrive. The last 30 years being in an era of the assumption that the role of the state should be minimal. It should be to control and regulate, but not to fund public services, for instance. And, you know, the era that we're talking about from the sort of 70s, 80s on was preceded in both the US and the UK by a much more benign, in a way, period, you know, that was probably more Keynesian in its approach. We got the National Health Service over here, for instance, in that period. Um, and thank goodness that's still going. But, um, you know, the, the market um, philosophy that, that replaced it, as you say, Milton Friedman and the Chicago School in particular, were very influential in the US and the UK and in some parts of the world like Chile. Oh, they argue that, you know, survival of the fittest, um, that you don't carry dead weight in organisations, that organisations have no responsibility to anything other than their shareholders or investors. And that, you know, ultimately, uh, people, whilst we've always talked in my lifetime as people being your greatest asset um, in practice, in, in neoliberalism, they're generally regarded, unless they have got exceptional skills, um, as your greatest cost. You know, so the aim is to increase returns to shareholders. And therefore, you as, a, as, a, as a, an executive, your job is to make sure that you adopt technologies, um, structures and other things that will increase the returns to shareholders. Almost all of those moves within organisations, that philosophy actually tends to lead to an intensification of work for the people doing the jobs. Um, you know, technology hasn't, in that sense, made us free to have leisure, leisure time left, right and centre. Or, or if it does, we have too much leisure time because we've got no work. And, and, you know, we've ended up in an era where there are lots and lots of people who are burnt out by work. There's no job security linked with that because neoliberalism would suggest that, you know, if people genuinely are a cost, the older you are, the more pension liabilities the firm has towards you, the less they're going to want you to stick around, you know. So there is an inherent um, mismatch between what the organisation needs and what, what um, employees themselves might need. So we've ended up with a really wholesale transformation 
of the labour market. I mean, you've got it. You've got many of the symptoms in the in the states as we have here, of whole communities that have been, you know, devastated by the loss of key industries. That's that may be to do with um, global trade and you know being paid relatively high high wages relative to um, parts of the developing world. Uh, but once those industries have gone, they tend to stay gone. And, um, you know, so we have got the consequences of neoliberalism working through right now, since it's underpinned the global capitalist model for the last 20, 30 years, in in the kinds of very populist um, and often very right-wing reactions. Uh, you know, in, in today we have um, the elections going on in, in the Netherlands and um, there'll be elections in May in, in France, for instance, well, there's quite strong possibility that uh, the far right will, will make significant gains on the basis, as we experienced with Brexit, that, um, you know, the left behinds, as they're called, um, must have justice. And, you know, that may be, that is absolutely true, philosophically speaking, uh, but, you know, that, that would require quite a wholesale shift in the global capitalist model that we've had all these years. So I think neoliberalism has brought many benefits um, in that, you know, there have been, you know, huge, huge proliferation of firms and industries and opportunities allied with the growth of the internet and so on. But it's also had major downsides. And I think we're seeing the, the start of the downside showing through in a sort of, not an international revolt, that would be too strong a term, but, you know, upheavals, which reflect the kinds of uncertainties and disparities that you tend to see now in workplaces where, you know, you've got people who struggle to get a foot through the door for their first job, or if they're in their job, to get up any sort of ladder and to hold on to their job. So, um, you know, the upsides and the downsides. And yeah. I think the social contract or is one that sorry, has put all the risk with the employee. You've uh, touched on so many different areas here. Certainly, we do have these very large-scale forces, macro forces at the global level and at the country level. And, you know, the economics of world trade and those sorts of things. My sense is that a lot of the people that have been left behind uh, in the <clears throat> blue-collar jobs and uh, lack of skills, perhaps, to move up to a higher level have been essentially sidelined because of newer factories, newer high-tech factories coming online elsewhere in Asia or, or, or wherever that makes the, the factories, let's say, in the Rust Belt of the U.S. or in some parts of the U.K., uh, somewhat obsolete and uh, low-tech compared to the newer factories that are, that are coming online. Is that your sense yeah. as well? Very much so, and I think that's that's where, unfortunately, I think where where we're experiencing this sort of political upheaval is is where you know opportunist really politicians. Um, certainly, we've got one or two demagogues over here who have capitalised on people's sense of grievance and and positioned all the wrongs that people feel have been done to them in, in particular pockets. So, you know, if you've not got a job in the steel industry, it's because the EU's to blame would be a typical thing. Well, of course, as you said, a lot of that is nonsense. Um, and in fact, um, 
you know, the EU itself has actually been protective of, of many of the workers in the UK who might otherwise, left to the UK's own devices, have lost their jobs because it's one of the easiest countries to sack people. So, you know, there's a lot of miscommunication around what's going on. And as you say, the real growth, if any, is coming through the creative industries, through the, you know, industries that didn't exist 10 years ago, like digital marketing and so on, that don't require people to be located in a spot that can be done relatively cheaply and effectively um, through team working, through people linked by the internet and so on. And the skills required, the nous required to 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 do what's um, what's the output to produce the output required in creative industries is possibly very different from that of a traditional steelworking type role. And uh, I think that's where governments have a particular role to play, and which, of course, thanks to neoliberalism, many of them haven't done that in in looking ahead thinking about how industries and, and GDP growth is going to shift and, and investing or encouraging investment at, at uh, state level in the development of, of people's skills to prepare them for these new industries. Um, some countries do do that. You know, Denmark did it with wind turbines and so on. Um, but, you know, it's not happened generally here in the UK. So I agree that, you know, the Rust, Rust Belt workers are are going to be um, looking to see, you know, what kind of magic um, solution comes in to to revitalise industries that have actually long since gone elsewhere and will still compete more cheaply, even if they're not selling into the US anymore. Yeah, it's something of a, a struggle to capture the narrative in one sense, as you alluded to, the right wing uh, coming up with a narrative that's blaming various outside forces, uh, immigrants, and, and others, whereas the blame could just as well be laid at the feet of the capitalists, in a way, that, that have not mm. invested enough to um, upgrade the technology, upgrade the workers, uh, to stay competitive in the global economy, uh, basically. Yes. Uh, China, of course, um, being a state-dominated um, economy, uh, has um, you know made available funds to invest in technologies and in factories and very low interest sorts of things, uh, and and the West has really not competed to the same extent in the same way. Yes, and and in a way that's I think again to do with uh, going back to neoliberalism. It's, it's always been the philosophy I think that government's role is not to interfere with business or even actually to support business too much, but to let business get on with it. Their job is to deregulate and make it possible for companies to succeed globally. Well, of course, we know what happened to financial services as the deregulation took place uh, right through into the early years of this this century. Um, so, you know, it's, um, as you say, it's it's going back to your point about the narrative. I think that is another symptom of the world that we're in now, which is that, he who seizes the narrative, the popular na- narrative, and particularly is skilled in communicating using social media and digital channels and so on, and can can work somehow through Facebook and Google and, and somehow get uh, the algorithms 
pointing people towards like-minded people. There's no doubt that uh, particularly the far right seem to be very skilled at in almost all the countries where they're in, in the ascendancy. Um, they seem to be very skilled at uh, getting on on the offensive with their social media campaigns. And, and going back to the world of work, this is one of the reasons, again, why I think we need to think about a partnership approach with employees um, or with workers, even if they're not employees, because, um, you know, especially if people don't like you as an employer, you know, despite libel and all the rest of it, they are still likely to badmouth you to many of their friends. You're, you're likely to lose customers more quickly if you mistreat people, if you lose your reputation for being a good player, if you like, a good corporate citizen. So even if it's a negative incentive to try and do the best you can, um, you know, there is there is definitely a much more visible narrative that can be created, whether or not it's accurate is a different matter, you know, about business, about who's good or bad on the political front and about who's going to be a saviour. And, you know, all too sadly, people generally are willing to believe uh, because they get lots of comfort from other people believing the same things. So, you know, that's the era we're in, I think, and uh, interesting to see what happens next. Yeah, we're in a very uncertain time. But um, mm. to come back to your book, we're talking about a critical take on the HR contribution and redefining what we mean <laughs> by organizational effectiveness to, ex to an extent. What would you like to leave our audience with in terms of uh, things we haven't talked about that would, would kind of wrap up uh, what your what your main message is in this book? Well, to be as brief as I can, I think it's it's about recognizing this. Um, if if you agree with me, as as a fairly pivotal pivotal time for the world, for the world of business, for for work and for workers. And I think there are things that can be done to try and get a better relationship and and better results from organizations. And, you know, I'm, I'm cheered by some of the examples, particularly in the States, actually. They're mostly examples from the States, like Whole Foods Market, you know, John Mackey and Co., Johnson & Johnson. In the UK, we've got John Lewis Partnership. These are organizations that do tend to put their money where their mouth is, where they, you know, like John Mackey's Whole Foods Market says, service to others is their primary purpose. And they put their money where their mouth is by giving 5% of their profits away to, to communities and so on. And I think leaders in particular have a key role to play if we're going to avoid just repeating the errors of the past. You know, they have to see stewardship of, of um, a responsible and ethical business culture as their primary role. You know, if they, if they do that, they'll almost always get a successful business as well. So it's about building reputational capital, helping organizations to flourish, as Chris Laszlo would say. Um, and I think there's a phasing of that. It doesn't just happen overnight. And a lot of a lot of executives would need a lot of convincing, but there's beginnings of a movement in that direction, which is encouraging. And hybrid type organizations that sort of straddle the profit, non-profit worlds like Unilever are actually making a difference here. HR itself, I think, needs to shift from being seeing itself as the primary servant, if you like, of um, 
the executive agenda to deliver shareholder value. I'm not saying they have to tear that up, but there is something about being um, willing to put the human back into organisations, not just see themselves as a managerial hand tool, if you like, and be more employee-centric, you know, help manage some of the dilemmas of, of, you know, some of the potential conflicts between, you know, I'm da- we're downsizing the organisation and we're intensifying work for those that are left. Now we have to develop a stress management policy. I think it needs to be thought through much more than that, some challenge of what's going on, as well as implementing what needs to be done in the most employee-centric way it's possible to do. And, and to build things that don't exist anymore, things like, you know, focusing very actively on worker well-being and even career development, learning and development, building a new working relationship with the people who deliver the goods for the organisation and its stakeholders. So I think there's a, a big role to play. It's a long journey, but I'm sufficiently encouraged by the examples I've come across on my research for this book to think, well, whatever else is happening, there is some good stuff underway. And I think those are the clues to what sustainable effectiveness might be about. Yeah. So I think what you're saying is you want to challenge a lot of the conventional wisdom that's going on, but also inspire us by pointing to examples like Whole Foods and others uh, that are taking a new approach and or both respecting their workers and their other stakeholders uh, and, and forging a new, a new path forward. Yeah. I think we're going to have to leave it there today, um, but it's been a great pleasure to have you with us, uh, Linda. Thank you, we'll, Charles. We'll have you back to talk about another one of your books again in the future, hopefully. Oh, my pleasure, and uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thanks very much. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we'll again explore stories about organizations and their performance. In the meantime, you can access all of our podcasts at our website, ageofoe.com. Until next week, so long for now.